Hello, and welcome to Creative Banter, a creativity and philosophy-focused podcast where anything goes. I'm your host, Cody Schultz. Joining me is the one and only Ben Horn. In this episode, we discuss Ben's recent spring trip to the backwoods of Utah and how our appreciation for nature improves as we learn the intimacies of the location. Let's dive right into it, shall we? Oh, how are you settling in now that you're back from your trip, Ben? Pretty good. Pretty good. Um, I, I definitely got very wiped out on this one. Um, I, I don't know how, how many... Um, do, you, do you have a Fitbit or anything like that to keep track of stats when you are out in the field at all? I did for a little bit, but it just it wasn't working out for me. Like kept malfunctioning or something, ah. so uh, I don't use it. Yeah, I, I've, I think it was back in 2019 that I started wearing a Fitbit because I was curious about the amount of calories I was burning. I know it's just an estimate, but that and the steps and distances. And it's especially interesting to wear it on the backpacking trips because the, the trip I just got back from, uh, I just got back from it a few days ago. And the last time we were recording was the day before I left. I was doing about 15 miles a day for six days straight. And according to the Fitbit, I was, I was burning somewhere between 4,000 and 5,000 calories a day. And wow. Yeah. And <laughs> that's, that's quite a bit. Yeah. It, it, and with the amount of food to take on the backpacking trip, I, I can't replenish that much. And at a certain you point, talked I talked about that before in a video, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah. And cause when I'm near what I'm photographing close to my vehicle, I can just pound calories. And that's has worked out very well where I would just like add some olive oil to some of the freeze dried meals and stuff like that. Um, but on the backpacking trips, man, it's at a certain point I do end up hitting a wall. At least it's good to look at the stats and to say, okay, this is why I'm feeling very sluggish. It's just cause my body's yeah. telling me I just need to relax. I wonder if there are any more like calorie dense, like I know cliff bars are huge on like carbohydrates and all of that for specifically for like those bigger things. Have you ever tried anything like that? Or I don't know exactly what you pack in terms of food, but. So I'll take a mixture of um, some of the freeze dried meals and and some of them get to be a little more calorie dense. Um, Some of the ones I took this time, they're closer to about 900 calories each, which was pretty decent for that type of uh, meal but then i'll take some uh, like granola bars and stuff like that just to have stuff on the go and uh, having the mixture of them is pretty good but i just i don't know that it would be very possible to replenish the amount of calories i was burning yeah that's a lot yeah yeah Um, but you know my energy lasted me through the whole trip Um, i spent two nights in a canyon that I've been revisiting every year for the past six years now. And it was in that canyon that I found my favorite photo of the trip. And it was actually pretty close to where I was camping, which was nice. Um, But then I, I hiked back to the trailhead and I wanted to visit a different canyon. And my campsite for the second part of the backpacking trip was only it was maybe about seven miles from where I was camped the first time, but I had to drive about three hours to access the trailhead to that particular location from kind of a different side. The The one night that I stayed um, uh, with my truck kind of before hiking into the new canyon I'd never been to before, it got so windy, man. It was, it, <laughs> it, it was like, there was like windblown sand. It was crazy. And, and I was loading film at the time. Um, oh no! Yeah, <laughs> I was my my forerunners pointed into the wind, which was good, and I, I load film out of the back of my forerunner. But I have my arms right. in the film changing tent, 
and I'm loading film and the wind kicks up and I just close my eyes because otherwise I'll just get, you know, sand in my eyes. But, you know, thankfully everything was fine and there's, you know, no no dust getting into the to the film as I was loading it or anything like that. Yeah, that could be bad. But it was really, really windy. Have you guys had any like um, any any sort of strange weather so far this spring? Because it's been really, really windy out here out west. Uh, we've been facing quite a bit of wind here. Not so much recently, though. Um, it's weird because we're now just getting into like what I would consider spring, beginning of summer weather. Because for a while, we'd be having highs of like 60, 70, and then it would drop down to like the 30s, 40s again. Like it was pretty drastic changes in, in temperature. Um, but now we're finally like things are starting to level out a little bit. Yeah, because it's it, it, it was, it's been just really weird. And, and I, I was talking to some other um, people when I was out in Utah. And they said that yeah, this was like one of the the windiest springs that they've that they've seen for a, in a while, and um, it, it makes it challenging when shooting large format um, because there, there's a little saying that kind of goes through my mind when I'm out on these trips, which is when there's wind, there's clouds, and when there's clouds, there's wind, and and both of those are not beneficial uh, when I'm out shooting because uh, the clouds will kill the light. And then the wind will move the leaves, and I'm just sitting there waiting for you know a, a, a scene to to improve. Um, but there's there's always those little little breaks in the wind and in breaks in the the dust and everything else that that builds up. <laughs> um, but I I visited a new canyon which was which was really fun, and and I think I've mentioned this in the past in the past episodes where one of the things I really enjoy about visiting a location is learning uh the the plants the animals and um and there's something about that that allows you to get to know a location even better and one of the things i found myself looking into this year was uh the geology of the locations and the different layers of sandstone and how old they are and i just dove down that rabbit hole um, as soon as I got back and I, I really learned to recognize the different uh, types of sandstone and and the the geologic processes that exist in these areas which gave me a whole new appreciation for the area and I think it's some one of the things as you know landscape or you know outdoor photographers taking the time to really get to know the location. Uh, I, I think it makes it so much more, well, it, it gives a greater sense of appreciation for it. And so that's, that, that was one of the things I really, I did enjoy. And then the other thing too, is I had mentioned in past episodes, the, the first day funk where I just have this, um, it, it's, it's a, it's a little bit of a, perhaps a, a mini panic attack when going on these trips in the first day or so. And I didn't have it this time. Um, or at least I didn't have it during the trip. I, I think um, I had it the, the day before I left. Um, probably uh, uh, may, maybe when we were talking about the trip, um, the upcoming trip on the previous episode, I, I, maybe that kind of helped me kind of work my way through it a little bit. And, and I found that when I was on the trip this time, um, I would just, I approached everything with an enormous sense of gratitude for just being able to be in those places to explore, to find photos. And it also made me realize how ridiculous the whole thing is. And the fact that I can now call this my career and I'm in going to these places, and it shouldn't be possible. I, I shouldn't be able to make a living from this, but somehow I am. And so that was that was kind of a nice feeling to have. Yeah, I I agree. It's it's a very weird idea, even for. I mean, if you really get down and think about it, you 
when we're selling prints essentially to, or especially I should say, when we're selling prints, we're just selling people paper with ink on it. I mean, that's looking at it as a very, exactly for what it is and not necessarily the abstract idea of art, but, but still to think that you were paid by people to make videos of you wandering the woods with silver gelatin (laughs) or with gelatin on film and just a wooden camera. It's, it's very odd to think about. And you bringing up the whole learning the geology of locations, it connects to this book that I just finished reading, uh, where the crowd, where the crawdads sing which was I read that one. Yeah. Just thinking about how the main character is in this marsh and learning so much about the marsh just being so connected to her home and to nature as a whole to the point where she knows more about that localized area than someone with a PhD in like that specific study. That just, it's amazing how our connection to nature helps to foster further education. Yeah. And how we can become so much better than what other people will be from reading books just by going out into into the woods. And I was thinking about, I think it's been, it's been probably a little over a year since I read that book. But I remember reading up on the author and the author was, it basically studied um, the, all the, that environment, the, the plants, the animals and everything. And, and that's how they approached it in terms of like, here's the environment, which is really one of almost one of the main characters in, in the novel. Um, and then you have, you know, the, the human aspect of the story as well, but it really is a portrait of the environment because of the, all the author's knowledge of it. Um, and, and it was just so, it was very interesting how descriptive it was and how you could just picture that place, even though it's a, you know, a, a, not an environment I've ever visited in person. And it's also makes me think of your thinking with like how weird it is to be making money off of doing what you're doing, because then she ends up making money from books and that use her knowledge yeah and that just i think that ties hand in hand the fact that you have someone who never studied anywhere never had any formal education but because of what she grew up around and what she knew it it helps her to make a living and i'm sure that's just as abstract of a concept to her as it is because it's much the same with art yeah oh definitely Another thing too, um, I, I have a question for you. Have you ever, when you're out taking photos in the field, have you ever ran into someone that you know that you had no clue would be there and they had no clue you'd be there? I can't say that I have. I've run into photographers that like, then I've talked to and everything. Like there was one instance where I was out with my camera and ran into another photographer and it was I think one of like the only instances and we got talking but didn't know him prior or anything so now I don't think I've ever run into people that I know on the trails because that's that actually happened to me twice on this trip uh toward the end of the trip after I had finished the backpacking portion uh, I drove over to Capitol Reef National Park which is a really interesting national park Uh, not very developed but just absolutely amazing geology there and I was hiking into this canyon that I saw on some satellite maps, but I'd never been there before. I didn't really know what to expect. And I hiked in there. It's an absolutely beautiful canyon, uh, these big, beautiful cottonwood trees and these um, white walls of sandstone and just really beautiful plants. And it, it was, it's a harsh environment, yet everything felt so very soft. It was, it was very interesting. Um, but I was the only person in that canyon. I hadn't seen anyone else all day. I hiked in there in the morning and then it was, it was coming up on, on lunchtime. So I decided to, you know, head back to my truck and as I'm hiking out of there, 
I see another hiker coming towards me. And then as they get a little closer, I realize I know exactly who it is. It's a photographer I know. His name's Lauren and uh, shoots both large format and, and, and shoots digital as well. And so we were talking for a while and, and neither of us had been in that canyon before. Neither of us knew that each other, you know, either of us was, was in Utah or was in Capitol Reef. Yet we happened to bump into each other in some obscure canyon in the middle of nowhere. And when I got back to my uh, truck that evening, uh, there was a note on my truck from another photographer I know who happened to be passing through. Um, his name's uh, uh, Jim Bicia, and he, he's really talented, large format photographer from Wisconsin. And he just happened to be passing through and, and saw me there as well. Uh, well, at least saw my truck there. But it's, I seem to run into these situations quite a bit where there's photographers I know, we bump into each other, we had no knowledge we'd be there. But it also gets me thinking that as creative and as unique as we all think we are, maybe not quite as much. You know, we, there is a, a similar thought process that kind of leads us all to some of these areas. So I thought it was just fascinating to run into people I, I knew in a place that I didn't know. I think a large part of that is playing into where you are too, being out West and being in specifically Utah, which is such a diverse area that a lot of people flock to. Yeah. I mean, even like in the back canyons, I, I don't think I get that over here simply because I mean, it's much like in the middle of the country where you have like just flat land. People don't think of those states as photographic uh, ideals, much like they don't think of Pennsylvania as like a photographic or a place to go and photograph specifically. There's no like massive landmarks or anything. So I think that plays a plays at least a part into your running into people and mine not. I could yeah, I could definitely see how that would be the case. Um, and actually, when you're when you're talking about how you know place like Pennsylvania, other areas that may not have the, um, the iconic landmarks that are out in the West. You know, I, I've never, I've never done any photography out there. All my photography has been in the West. Um, so it, it does get me thinking in terms of, I, there's gotta be so much, I, I would imagine that I would do very, I would do decently well. Um, in an environment where there aren't iconic subjects. Cause I, I try to avoid the iconic stuff anyways, just because I, I find that the images don't, they're not very, they're not very personal. They're not very, I'm not very invested in those subjects. So the thought of being in an area where there really aren't any icons. And I would think that that might give a little more encouragement to scout around and to find those sort of subjects that really do relate to you or you really do you're invested in them emotionally for one reason or another but i've never i've never tried photographing in that environment before but i would i would think that would be probably my experience perhaps which like we've talked about in previous episodes too all comes down to mindset yeah because if you come into a place like Pennsylvania thinking that it's going to be just as quote unquote easy to get a uh, portfolio worthy photograph, so to speak, as it would be out West where you have the mountains and the stereotypical beautiful views, you're not going to come away with anything. Yeah. I mean, I, even I find after eight years of photographing in Pennsylvania, it is hard. Like you have to really be of, a particular mindset and just understand that the scenes that you are going to capture are not going to be like anything that you see typically on the popular pages of like social media. Yeah. I would, I would imagine that a photographer like Alex Burke would do very well there because of the tremendous work that he does in the plains. And it seems like wherever he goes, he just finds very good stuff. So it would actually be very interesting to see uh, him work an area uh, like Pennsylvania or some of the other areas over there. I, it would 
it would be very fascinating to see. Yeah, he's been over my way a couple times. Um, I think 2019 was the last time that he was, at least that I'm that I was paying attention and was aware. Uh, that's when he came over to he came up to New York for a little while. Um, photographed, I think, Tohannock Falls, which I wanted to go meet up with him at that point, but didn't work out. Um, but he's done some photographs, I think, in the forests of Pennsylvania here and there. Not a lot, but I know that he also went down to Shenandoah, down in Virginia, and did pretty well down there. So, yeah. Yeah, he's always done pretty well with, like you said, with all of his work. Yeah. Especially photographing the planes. I mean, when you are able to make a, a beautiful photograph from just grain silos. And yeah. The, the stuff that people would pass by thinking, why do we even have that in the modern day? And when you can make a photograph out of that, that people actually want to hang on their walls, then yeah, you're you're going to be able to make a photograph out of pretty much anything. Yeah, I mean, the, the beautiful light, the the skies, the the soft pastel tones. Um, it's, I mean, I, I typically avoid man-made subjects. I'm, I'm not sure why that is necessarily. Um, but his his work is a, a such a wonderful mix of, I mean, obviously there's the, you know, full-on wilderness images, um, but in the context of the, you know, the, the, the grain silos and all the interesting stuff that he finds out there, just, you know, it, you could substitute just like a, any sort of thing in there that's, that's natural, whether it's, you know, mountains, lakes or whatever, it's, it's, it's all about the, the, the light, you know, the composition and he, it just looks so very effortless and it, it doesn't, even though in those cases it's man-made subjects, it comes across very peaceful, very natural, and it gives me the same sort of feeling I'd get if I was looking at a wilderness image. And I think there t it takes a lot of talent and a lot of skill to soften those sort of man-made structures in a way that makes them so very photogenic. Yeah, there is an article uh, back in April on... Uh, Petapixel that talked about like the pure landscape photography versus including the human element. And I always thought that it was interesting to the idea of including something that's man-made versus something that's not. And I kind of battle a, a thin line with that. A lot of the structures that I find, like I have interest in photographing, uh, like abandoned buildings and that kind of thing. But then I struggle with calling myself a landscape photographer or a nature photographer because then it's not truly nature as the main subject. And so a lot of the stuff that I that I photograph that has the human element in it is stuff that I find in the woods. It has it has to be just as immersed in the nature as what I am. That's that's along the same lines of what I've done. I only have one photo that has a man-made element in it. Um, I'm kind of thinking back. I, I know I have one. Maybe there could be something else, but I'm pretty sure it's just one. It was a photo up in the Redwoods, and it was it's, it's a beautiful scene, a very lush green, as one would expect to find in the Redwoods, a trail leading kind of, you know, from the foreground kind of into the midground, and there's this uh, some sort of deciduous tree that has this big overarching limb, and then in the background you see just the front little bit of a bridge that goes over a creek, and that particular subject um, would be perfectly fine if it didn't have the bridge in there. It would have been just as effective. Um, I think the bridge adds perhaps a little bit of a sense of mystery, but I, I avoided photographing that scene when I first found it um, because I almost felt like it was whoever built the bridge built it at that particular area because it was, it was their vision for the scene. And it could just be that was just the best place to put the bridge and all the other trees and stuff happened to just be there. 
But knowing how trail builders oftentimes will build the trail for to give people certain specific views. At first, I, I avoided photographing that scene because I felt like it wasn't my work. I felt like it was the work of whoever built the trail, whoever built the bridge. And it was almost too too easy of a composition, too, too well-crafted, almost like photographing something in a Disney park, you know, that was created as opposed to something as I found it. But then I, when I returned on another year, I, I didn't find many other subjects. So I decided to photograph that scene and I really liked the way that that one turned out. But I think it would also be just fine if that bridge wasn't there. I don't know if I agree with you on that. Cause I, I'm looking at it now. And for those listening, it's titled overarching on your, uh, with trees gallery and mm-hmm. I'll put a link below too but I don't know that I would agree because I I think that it really helps to make the photograph like you said to add that element of of mystery and yeah the overarching tree is the main subject to it but I don't think it's strong enough of a subject alone where if instead of that path and instead of that tree or instead of that bridge rather you just had a bunch of continuous brush or bramble yeah so i i think it definitely i don't know how you think on it but i know a lot of times i'll look back at photographs and yeah i may feel similarly to how you do with this bridge where Mm -hmm. oh the photograph would be fine without it but i think it's the bridge that stopped you which and is made true. you take the photograph. Which is true. Uh, without it, you would have just kind of passed it by more easily and not had gone back to it so many times. And I, I could see how it, it does add a little bit of a sense of mystery since you can't see where the bridge leads. You just see the steps leading up to it. It's a little bit overgrown with regard to some plants growing among the, uh, the treads of the steps. But you can't really see where it is. So I, I guess the bridge in this case adds perhaps that little sense of mystery of kind of what's around the next corner. And I do see how if the trail, if there was no bridge there, the trail may not give enough of a compelling question as to what's around the corner. Because it'd probably get lost in the greenery. Plus, if the bridge wasn't there, would there be a trail? Very true. <laughs> <laughs> and And actually in the context... In the context of uh, something that we spoke about in the past, this particular scene, about a 30-second walk from the road. So it's, it's, it's not off in the, you know, it's not four or five miles or 15 miles down some trail. It's, it's really quite next to the road, um, which is the other reason why when I saw that scene for the first time, I'm like, this is too good to be true. This has got to be a a scene that's photographed on like the park, you know, brochure or something like that, because it's, it it feels like it was a scene that was created. And in in a sense it was, as opposed to something that was completely natural that I just happened to stumble upon. And, And I think that's one of my conflicts when it comes to photographing man-made subjects. I feel like it's sort of taking credit for the work of others. Uh, as opposed to discovering something with my eyes for the first time and seeing something in it that someone else didn't see. I know when it comes to the woods, especially around me with state parks and such, that a lot of it is maintained by individuals. So, And obviously the same goes with national parks and everything. Yeah. So I find it, I find it curious that you don't think of it much the same that you think of like this bridge for instance being in there as you photographing something that's that you can't take credit for but the trails that you go on to and maybe not necessarily that you in particular since you're more in the the back country so to speak of it but but still that there's people maintaining these trails and working to to make them better for the public and even when you photograph using them or right aside of them or you know what i'm saying that you don't take the 
that same approach to it. Yeah. And, and I, I, I could totally see that. Um, and I, I do, it's, it's definitely an interesting, interesting question. Um, like when it comes to the trails and stuff, I think some of the more developed, well, I, I, I gotta give a lot of credit to the people that do create the trails. Um, and, and certainly that also maintain them because especially in a wooded environment, I know it takes, it takes a lot of effort. Um, in some cases, it just it feels like in this scene, it feels like it was too too perfect. I think is is the is something that and, and sometimes that that make just makes it feel like it's someone else's vision as opposed to my own. Yeah, I can see that. So there was another thing that came up when I was on my trip. And this is something I'll also be curious to hear your thoughts on as well. Um, but when I am on the photography trips, I oftentimes have very vivid dreams. And especially when I'm on the backpacking trips. And I think I've mentioned this a little bit in the past, but in, the, in this particular case, I had this very interesting dream. I was backpacking in the second canyon uh, it was the first time I had ever visited that canyon. It was um, about a seven and a half mile hike to get into the canyon. And then I'm camped along a river. So it's really good sleep. There's the, the wind through the cottonwood trees above. There's the, the sound of the river nearby. But I will have these absolutely vivid, absolutely bizarre dreams. And I had this dream that I had that my wife and I adopted a rescue wolf. <laughs> And it was this massive black wolf, huge, like massive wolf. And it was very bitey. And it just, it just went through my mind the whole time, like going like, this is, this is a terrible idea. We, we shouldn't have rescued this giant bitey muscular wolf. And I, I just find that when I go on these dreams, I, or when I go on these trips, I have these very vivid dreams. And, I don't know if there's any sense to them at all. This one I, I couldn't make any sense to. I mean, we, we adopted a dog about a year ago, but he's not a wolf and he's not bitey. Um, so, but uh, <laughs> have you had any experiences like that? No, not. Not I specifically? Mean, not specifically, no. <laughs> yeah. I, I also don't go, or I haven't yet gone on a bunch of trips like how you do where I have like one trip a year for camping is pretty much all that I have managed to, to get in um, this year. I'm hoping to make it a little bit different. So yeah. I can't necessarily say that I have, but perhaps that will change in the future. Yeah. I'm kind of hoping I don't have dreams about <laughs> adopting a wolf, giant wolf dog. That's bitey. It's, it's, uh, it, it makes for an interesting experience. I, I will say I, I do look forward to those. And then the other thing that happens, and I can't remember if I've mentioned this in the past, but um, when I get home from the trips, I will often have dreams I'm still in the field. Have I, have I mentioned that in the past? I don't think so. Okay. So it's, it's a really weird thing that happens. It happens almost every single time after I come back from a trip. Um, I'll just be, you know, it'll be, two o'clock, three o'clock in the morning. And I'll have a dream that I am still in the field, but that I fell asleep in like a slot canyon or something. And so I will actually sit up in bed. I'll look around me. And at this point I'm fully awake, but my mind is still a little bit asleep and it sees everything around me in the, in the darkened room. It, it looks like the walls, like walls of sandstone. And it's absolutely bizarre where I'm just sitting there looking around and I cannot make sense of what I see. But then eventually I'll kind of look up and then the night sky slowly becomes a ceiling fan. And or, or looking over to the to the right, there is a there's a window there, and all of a sudden like this this patch of sandstone starts to look like a window, and I see a tree outside where my brain finally figures out that I wasn't just like napping in a slot canyon. I fell asleep and I woke up in the middle of the night, but that I am in fact home. But it is 
absolutely bizarre. And it, it, it happens, I'd say, probably about, uh, about half the time um, for all the trips I go on. I come back, and I'll just have that dream where I wake up. I'm like, all right, where am I now? Where did I fall asleep? And, and you know, it's just absolutely bizarre. And just to see your brain try to figure things out. Then, then you realize, oh, I'm, I'm back home again. But that's, that's the other weird part about spending a lot of time in the field. How long do those does that last is it just like the night after or after yeah you get back or usually just like the night after maybe maybe for a second night um but there like uh the last time it happened um and it happened a little bit on this trip not fully but i think it was maybe when i came back from my death valley trip or my zion winter trip I, my, my wife was just kind of like you know she, she just like tapped me on the shoulder she's like you're home and I'm like, oh, okay. Because I was wondering why you were here too. <laughs> it's like, why, why are you asleep in the slot canyon as well? It's, it's just. I it's didn't a, bring you along. Yeah, it's just a really bizarre. Like, why is the cat here? I don't know why the cat's here. Why well, do I don't take the cat on trip? But it's just absolutely bizarre. I've I've never done drugs in my life, but I have a feeling that that might give some sort of a a look into when when your your senses and your in your brain they can't quite figure out what's going on but uh but yeah if you go on some more trips and spend a lot of time in the field maybe you will have some odd experiences like that as well it's it's an odd one i think that ties into just how immersed you are in the field too i mean the the fact that you're paying attention to so much and absorbing so much information that your brain when you finally come back can't it has to do something with it yeah that that's interesting. I can't say that I've ever woken up in my bedroom thinking that I was out in the middle of the woods or that I adopted a pet bear, for instance. But <laughs> like you said, maybe maybe in a maybe in a couple months I do a couple trips this summer and everything and we'll be recording and talking about how I adopted I don't know, what some kind of weird animal and yeah. It's, see how that goes. But it, it, yeah, you know, I can't say for now. It makes it makes it very interesting. That's that is for sure. Um, but I, I will say, um, also another thing too, on the topic of the backpacking trip, um, I got my, my entire kit down to about 34 pounds. I know I'd mentioned that in the past. It was, it was so nice being able to hike around and it did not, it didn't feel like very much weight at all that I was carrying. Um, and one, one tip will pass on that, that worked out pretty well in terms of getting my bag to be relatively compact. Because it was, it's about a, I think a sixty-four liter pack that I have, which is a fairly small pack. Um, but I put the the sleeping bag, my puffy jacket, my cooking pot, the sleeping pad, all that sort of stuff at the bottom of the pack. Uh, middle of pack is where you should have a little bit more of the weight there, because it's right up against your back. It's a little bit better balance. So I had the the Chamonix eight by ten, and then four film holders, and then on top of that. Um, at the very, very top, I have my tent, which is a very, very lightweight tent. But all the other stuff, like the lenses, the um, the light meter, the stopwatch, all, all the shooting stuff, I just wrapped all that stuff up inside my dark cloth. And then I just kind of put that bundle of stuff um, on top of the camera and the, and the film holders and then the tent on top of that. And it was very well balanced. Um, and the dark cloth being able to serve double duty in terms of, you know, keeping all the stuff somewhat organized, um, but also, you know, you know, serving as the actual dark cloth that, that worked out pretty well, but it was, it was an absolute joy hiking with the very lightweight kit that I had. And so I was, I was very, very happy with how that worked out. So it'll be interesting because I know that you have the, some backpacking trips are coming up at some point. Uh, so in some, you know, extended hiking. And so it'll be, it'll be interesting to see how, how you do with that and how, what kind of weight you're able to keep your, your kit to. Um, but I will say that, man, all the, the, all the things I did to lower the, the weight, um, my, my knees very much appreciated it. Yeah, I believe that. Yeah. I got that trip coming up Memorial day weekend is when we're going to be doing an overnight, 
uh, backpacking trip on the Appalachian Trail. Nice. Um, yeah, so he actually got the same bag that I have, mm-hmm. which is the Gregory Baltora 65 liter. Okay, so about the same uh, size pack I have. That's cool. Yeah, um, which has actually worked out pretty nice the few times that I've had on the trail since getting it. Um, I just have one of those, I think it's Tanoba um, bags for my lenses, that, or for my lens, my uh, filters, all that stuff mm-hmm. that I throw into, and I just put that, put my camera, because it has that uh, Chamonix carrying case that it comes with, yeah, um, which is really nice. So I just put that on top of the Tanoba, just in the middle of the pack with my dark cloth rolled up a side of it. And that's, that's worked out pretty well. Um, the only thing that I'm unsure of is, uh, in terms of packing like more into it because of the fact that this bag only has two sections. So it's the main pack and then it has a separated, uh, like sleeping bag compartment on the bottom. Mm-hmm. Um, and I kind of wish that there was a third separator. So mm-hmm. like for the very top. Got which it. I know that your um, Denali bag has, I think in three is in three sections like that. Yeah, yeah. And the yeah. top is I, what I would use to what I would put the food in because um, it was pretty lightweight and and all that. But also I wasn't I wasn't hiking in bear country, so yeah, yeah. So I I wish that it had those three separations. But we're for this trip in particular, instead of doing uh, tents, we are just doing um, we got hammocks. Oh, cool. That we're going to try out. Yeah. I mean, he got one that we ended up getting the same one because he got it about a month ago. Um, and him and his girlfriend really just love it and say that it's super comfortable and everything. And it was pretty cheap, like 40 bucks or so. Um, so I picked one up and was waiting for the wind to weather to cooperate a little bit to set it up. But should be interesting to see how things turn out. Yeah. But it'll be nice because... I don't have to carry everything by myself. Yeah. So in terms of my pack, it will be a lot lighter, but. Well, that's good. But how did that uh, Chamonix work out for you then? Because this is the first trip that you took it on, right? Yeah. First trip I took it on and it was, it was an absolute joy to use. Um, it's, it's different from my Arca Swiss. Um, and, and for those that aren't familiar with Chamonix, it's, it's a folding wooden camera. Um, but it's, it, it was, it was, it was a joy to work with very smooth. Um, I, I know that when it comes to, to camera stuff, people get all like invested in gear and that's never been my style. I know it's never been your style. Um, but when you have something that is nice to work with, um, and I am, I am not a musician, but I can only imagine it's just like having a good instrument where you don't think about it. It just, it does its thing. And that's all that really matters. Yeah. Extension of your hand. So, um, so yeah, I was, I was, it was a joy to work with. I was very happy. There's no, no real surprises, which is, which is always good. Um, and I got my film back from the lab. I have, there's, there's one photo I really like. Um, the other ones, eh, they're okay. Um, but it's this new canyon I went into it. It's like, it's a bit like, um, uh, it's a place I'm going to return to year after year. So this was only my first taste of what this Canyon has to offer. And I left many photos on the table in terms of scenes that I walked right past that I very could well have taken photos of. Um, but I felt good just kind of leaving those for, for future visits. Um, so it was, it was, it was delightful. It was, it was a lot of work. Um, but it was, it was absolute pleasure being there and it just, and I was I was very grateful for the opportunity to to go there and to to see that, especially learning more about the geology and how the sandstone was laid down during the like Jurassic period. And it was just absolutely fascinating to to dig deep into that. And one thing that I wanted to to talk about here, and it's something that I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on as well. Um, once I get back from the trip, I go through, I scan all the images and, and I have them on the computer. Um, but I, I, I have a question for you when, when you're editing, 
uh, you know, some scans of your images on on the computer. What color background do you use when you're doing your editing? I think it's like the medium gray. Medium gray. Um, yeah, I haven't done a ton of editing recently. Past when I um, rescanned my film, but most of that was just uh, copy and pasting settings for the most part. So. I haven't done anything that major, especially since getting this new uh, MacBook. Mm -hmm. So things might change, but for the most part, if I remember right, it's mainly like medium gray. Which, and that's what I used to do, it, which always worked well. And it's, it's certainly like kind of the, the default. I think Photoshop now goes even towards a darker gray as a default. Um, but I've really enjoyed editing on a white background. And... I think it's because it replicates a little bit more of what that image will look like on paper um, because you have something to compare the light tones in the image to as a known, like, you know, this is compare, as compared to white as opposed to as compared to gray. And so that that's one thing that I, I don't think a lot of people edit on a white background. And, and I can see how it might seem like, oh, it's going to be hard on your eyes because you have this harsh contrast. But I think if you have the monitor brightness set pretty well, to me, that gives me the most accurate feeling for how the print is going to be. And another thing, too, is I found that if I'm editing in Photoshop, if I bring up two photos at the same time um, and have them kind of split screen on the monitor... I find that it's really good to have kind of like the buddy system if I'm editing a photo that is a little bit difficult to edit. Now, this might be something, I can see how this could be something very um, perhaps unique to working with color images. With black and white, I don't know that it would hold up quite as much. But if there's an image I'm trying to just fine tune to make it look as natural as possible, uh, maybe correcting for a color cast or something. If I have another image that's kind of in the same sort of ballpark kind of subject on the screen, it gives me something to kind of switch between in terms of just switch my, switch my attention to and, and to compare to it. And somehow that buddy system of having the two images on the screen allows me to be a little bit more decisive when editing. It allows me to spot if things are a little bit not quite right. Um, and I, I can't, I can't imagine, well, maybe it does work for black and white as well. I, I have, have you ever tried that at all? No. And like, like you were saying, you, I think it's a lot to do with the, with maintaining an accurate representation between like the natural scene and how it was, I think in terms of like color cast and make sure that you're getting rid of that, especially if you're working with, um, like negative films, negative color films. Yeah. Um, I can see, though, in terms of doing that for maintaining tonality in black and white, making sure that you're not going overboard with how dark you are, especially if you're working on, say, a specific series of yeah. images that you want to make more cohesive. Um, but no, I, I don't... I can't say that I've tried that before. Yeah, I, I see how it could be really more beneficial for color just because there's some more subtle tweaking that has to be done. Um, but th there's another thing too, um, which is something I always do when I come back from my trips. I'll scan all the images. I'll leave all the tabs open in Photoshop. And then I'll just kind of go through the rapid fire like I'll, I'll flip to one of the tabs, get that first impression, do a couple of little tweaks, go to the next one, go to the next one, and just kind of keep going through that rotation. And that's the other thing I find to be very beneficial is editing a lot of them at once to get that, that first little glimpse um, and get that first impression and kind of edit based on that. Um, and and that's, I may have mentioned that in the past, but that's something that I've, that I've been doing over the past few days now that I have these images back just going through and just doing that rapid fire, a little tweak of the curves, a little tweak of the saturation, moving on to the next one, and eventually everything kind of falls into line. See, when I'm editing my images, I'll go through 
and I try and give it a couple days after I develop my film and then I'll start to actually look at them more and I'll take out my phone I'll take a photo then invert it to get an idea of like the base tonalities of it mm-hmm. um, and then once I scan them in I'll do kind of like how you are doing, going through rapid fire I'll just do quick edits mm-hmm. to everything and then that gives me an idea of once it's getting closer to what I want it is the composition still holding up is everything is the image as, as a whole still working for me and then I don't know if you do this too at some point during during it once I have it at least close to what I want and I've started to narrow down the images that I deem as keepers I'll go ahead and I'll print just a small like 8 by 10 or 4 by 5 of them mm-hmm. and then I'll hang them on my wall and give it a couple of days then and just by looking through them I find that that helps me to get a better idea of whether it's an image that I truly want to represent my photography as a whole and whether I would be comfortable selling that print to someone because at the end of the day my images I try and make as close for print as possible yeah that's I I do something kind of similar um it's really in the context of uh, printing some proof images at roughly eight by ten uh, for for the box sets, and I will live with those images for quite a while. So it's after I've done, after I've edited things to the point where I'm pretty happy with it, I'll make a test print, and I got a stack of like seven prints sitting on top of my scanner right now. Where you know I'll pick them up every now and then, look through them. Um, I'll sometimes have them hung up on uh, on this bookcase with some magnets, uh, just to keep looking at them and look at them in different different light. And and I think really it's a matter of just seeing if the feeling I get when I look at that printed image is really what I have in mind in terms of what I was feeling at that moment or anything along those lines. So maybe not necessarily a, a technical aspect, but just does this image still give me that feeling that I want it to? And there's something about seeing the image on paper that is so much, there's so much more nuance than seeing it on a screen. And and sometimes I can see an image on the screen and not really think too much of it. But when you see it on paper, it gives you a whole different perception over it. I hope you enjoyed our creative banter. You can learn more about Cody's work by visiting his website, codyschultz.com. And you can find my work at benhorn.com. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach out to us by email at cody at codyschultz.com. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you around next time.